Hey friend, here we are, another week, another episode of our Bible study series. We're calling the Bible for Grown-Ups this week. We're going to look, last week we looked at uh, the best time to encounter God with regard to biblical reference. Seems to be early in the morning, first thing. Tonight we're going to take the opposite approach. Tonight we're going to look at uh, Psalm 3 and 4. We're going to examine how God's faithfulness and God's protection can give us a great night's sleep. I'll see you on the other side. Well, guys, I'm going to go ahead and begin. We are at our time. Thank you all for coming tonight. We're continuing our look at Psalms, the book of Psalms, and uh, always uh, in an effort to try to be witty. Uh, Last week, we looked at what the best, I tried to make the argument of the best biblical time to seek God, and that was in the morning. We looked at Psalm 5, and that, uh, that episode was called the, the Morning Watch. Tonight we're going to go back just one, we're going to look at Psalm 3 and 4, and we're going to actually look at how to, spiritually of course, get a good night's sleep. So uh, this is the next installment of the book of Psalm. The, look at the book of Psalms. Now let's just go ahead and recap real quickly uh, the historical context and cultural context of the book of Psalms. So that we understand uh, the people's lives, as in a way, who are writing these words. Or if not writing them, at least collecting them together. Which will become the book. And that collection and creation of these portions of scripture, which are typically, um, they are songs. Or they are um, poems. Or uh, they are, um, no, songs, poems, or prayers, okay? Songs, poems, or prayers. And sometimes, sometimes they're a combination of, of two or three, of the three. And they were collected and written by the Jewish people after the temple had fallen and the Jewish, a great number of the Jewish people had entered into what was called the Babylonian captivity. Okay, that's where many Jewish people were taken from their home, the kingdom of Israel, within the city of Jerusalem. Not only is the city uh, essentially destroyed, but again, the temple, the center of Jewish faith, the place where God resides for the Jewish people. Well, at least the place where heaven and earth meet, is gone and been destroyed by people who look very similar to you. And it didn't seem like their God came down from the sky and blew up the temple, but we thought our God was stronger than that. And now, after we've lost the temple, here I am walking my way to Iraq with a bone, with a chained through my nose. They had lost everything. They had lost their families. They had lost their homes. They had lost their property. They had lost, in many ways, their God. And it's in this valley, this pit of despair, in which the words that we find are sometimes, they're written during those times. They're also collected from an earlier time and put together. The Jewish people over time put these, compiled these various things together because they all 
they all spoke to people and their relationship with God, the dependence on God's righteousness and faithfulness despite present circumstances. It's a survival handbook, if you will. And it's, it's in this time period, it's in this place of the Jewish people in which we find the book of Psalms. And that's also why I think the use of different literary device is so incredibly beautiful about the Psalms because it's not just simply scripture, but just like modern literature as art in our lives today, music in our lives as art today, prayer in our lives as art today. Those words are not just words that we read or we hear, but we can actually feel them. There's a shared human experience in the words of art. And that's what the book of Psalms are. They're, they're art. And we, we need to approach the reading of the Psalms. This isn't just a funny history lesson. This is how, this is the key to the, the lens to being able to understand the emotion behind the words that we read. Now, we're going to look at Psalms 3 and 4 tonight, but before that, we're actually going to skip, I'm going to skip back to 2 Samuel 15. You stay right where you're at. Uh, this is a chapter about uh, Absalom, who is King David's son, is, is mixed up in a conspiracy against his father. He wants to overthrow his father. Absalom wants to be the king and depose David. And so we take up the reading in verse 13. This is David's reaction to his son's rebellion. David is the king, but his son's trying to overthrow him. Here's David's reaction. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all the servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed and depart, lest he, that's Absalom, overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us. Smite the city with the edge of the sword. The king's servants said unto the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever you, our Lord, the king, shall appoint. And the king went forth, and he and all of his household with him. And the king left ten women, which were concubines, to keep the house. And the king went forth, and all the people after him. And he tarried off in a place that was far away. He skedaddles. He leaves, he, he turns chicken. He scrams. He leaves. His son is overtaking King David, the king of the Jewish people, the king of Judah, anointed by Yahweh. And David knows it. Okay, so Psalm 3, beginning to read at verse 1. We'll see if you have a reference Bible or if there's any marginal version of uh, Scripture that you have. You might see a little bit. Oh, I don't have it up here. You might see a little bit of a, a note um, here at the very beginning. Uh, something that will say in Psalm 3, it'll say a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. That's kind of the title, so to speak, of this particular psalm. Psalm 4, the next one, incidentally, is probably also another psalm written about this specific instance. I happen to believe that. 
And so um, that's why I've included it tonight in the same uh, material. Oh, sorry, I don't have the very beginning. So the very beginning, Psalm 3, verse 1. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Selah. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lie down and sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though thousands are, I'm sorry, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessings be on your people. Selah. For Psalm 4. We're going to read them all. They're not super long. Then we're going to talk about them. This has a subtitle as well. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will your people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Selah. Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now where we find ourselves today, indeed where we find ourselves throughout the whole of our culture, perhaps definitely in our individual lives and experiences and problems and trials and so on and so forth, the question of we Christian believers often Right? Is <coughs> pardon me? Is this question? Can we actually cancel out the fear and anxiety of our lives? We know that we're supposed to be, but but but, but can we? And if we can, how? Does God have like you like if you like some sort of noise canceling headphones spiritually to speak for us? Now, as we read 2 Samuel 15, indeed looked at Psalm 3 and 4, we saw that David, like ourselves, found himself in a very sticky situation. The context, as we've already looked at, 3 and 4 was probably written when David was exiled from Jerusalem because his son Absalom had wanted to steal the throne, the crown, and the kingdom from David. Where we find David in Psalm 3 and 4 is running away actually through the valleys and the hills of Judea for two whole nights, laying himself down to sleep, not on a bed, say a regal bed of comfort and luxury, one fit for a king, but rather on a bed of anxiety, 
lying out among the rough, rough rocks of the hillside. There's no protecting guard over him from the palace. The corridors and the chambers are not there and their guards, but rather everything around him is a fear and a threat. The danger of wild animals all around him. I think we can sympathize with David and his despondent spirit in this psalm. He's living in very, very stressful days. Perhaps maybe the most stressful days of his life. When even his son, a son that he loves very, very much. So much that when Absalom passes away, Scripture records that David says, Absalom, my son, my son, oh, that I would have died instead of you. What a dagger it must have been to David's heart to have his son stab him in the back, so to speak. David describes his problems, his trials, his stresses, and his pressures in these psalms. In verses 1 and 2, we read David's words, Lord, how many are my foes? His problems are increased. He uses the word, many are they that rise up against me. In verse 2, he says, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Selah. Now, uh, I don't, if you're familiar with the Psalms, you may or may not know what that word Selah means. Um, there is some uh, contention as to what the word means. It's not completely definitive. Although one of the most common practices or uses of the word Selah, Selah in uh, Hebrew literature is in music. When it's trying to express a pause, a moment of perhaps contemplation. And so while we don't know for sure that it's being used that way in this context, we do know that word is used in other similar contexts in that way. Okay, so it's not just for the musicians, but it would also be the one reading the Psalms. These Psalms would be, they're, they're the lyrics, right, of the song, so to speak. But the pause is not just a pause of like musical interlude, but like I had mentioned, it's supposed to be a moment of contemplation. It suggests, for example, that David is listening to his accusers. He's listening to what people are saying about him. Is there no help for me in God? And then Selah, taking a pause and thinking to himself, what if they're right? What if I'm wrong? Is there God at all? Is God a God of salvation that can actually save me? Is God a God of deliverance? And if he is, David, King David of Goliath fame, might be thinking to himself, if he is, then why am I out on the hilltops of Judea fleeing for my life from my own son? I wonder if you've ever asked the question before, if not maybe today, is there any help for me in God? Is actually there any help for us in the circumstances in our lives when we feel like everything is simply caving in around us and we are living 
in such stressful times that we can't even cope with the consequences? Is God there? David was there. <clears throat> and, and remember, King David and King David, uh, Goliath fame, that actually brings me comfort. Because it brings me comfort that even the great psalmist of Israel comes to God with an open heart. And loves God and knows God loves them enough to feel vulnerable and pour out all of that stress and that pain and that hurt and those questions to a God they know loves them. Yes. Amen. Right? And, and that's the way sometimes we don't feel even though we know we should feel. Because often our attitude is the world is against us. Everyone, everything is against us. Knowing is nothing is going well for us. And it seems like the stresses and the pressures of life here in the 21st uh, century, the stress is at, pardon the expression, but epidemic proportions. Whatever we need to cite regarding the problems, regarding our stress and our strain, it's there. Seems that everybody has some shape or form to a smaller or larger extent in the suffering that occurs in life. It is inescapable even for everyone. Again, some in different ways than others and some on smaller and greater degrees, but no one escapes the anxiety, anxieties of life. And for many people, it can be threatening to our lives. I'm told that 43% of adults suffers from some adverse side effect as a result of stress. According to a USA Today poll, a survey of adults in America was conducted by the Research and Forecast Syndicate, and they isolated the sources in the results to regard, uh, with regard to the causes of stress in people's lives. I thought this was interesting. Uh, believe it or not, Number one, work. 36% of people say that work, biggest cause of stress. 32% coming in a close second was money or financial concerns. 10% said their children caused them stress. 7% said it was their poor health. 5% said it was their marriage. I thought that was a little bit low. Another 5% said it's their parents' fault. Only 5% of people said they had no stress. I wonder how, I wonder if I might be, if, I'm, if that's you today, if, you, if it's hard to cope at times. Problems in your family, amongst your friends, your friend, I'm sorry, perhaps your marital relationships, your financial stress, bills that have to be paid no matter how much money is coming in or not coming in the mailbox. There's not a one of us, I had just mentioned, there's not a single one of us that haven't had a stressful day. But stressful days, as the psalmist is going to see, can also lead to sleepless nights. Sleepless nights are the potential fallout from stressful days. And there was great potential for David to experience uh, this kind of sleepless night, right? Think about it, out in the wilderness, in the hills of Judea, night after night on those rocky, uncomfortable beds. Great stress and anxiety, thinking about what might be happening right now in the palace. 
There's not one of us that hadn't experienced the sleepless night at some point when you just can't seem to get something out of your mind and it just robs you of the tranquility, of the peace that's necessary, the physiological conditions whereby the muscles in your body finally relax enough in which you can sleep. But let's also look for a moment at the danger that David was in. He was, he was threatened with losing his kingdom, his wealth. He was even threatened with losing his life. The great king of Israel is running away. Many people might even say running away scared, although he wasn't. Right? But that might, what it, that might have been what it looked like to most folks. Just running away from his problems. He had plenty of stressless, as you could imagine, stresses you could imagine to keep him sleepless. Yet what does he say? Look at verse 5. I laid me down and slept. And I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. Psalm 4, again, Written under circumstance, uh, same circumstances, ends with the same sentiment in verse 8. I will both lay down in peace and sleep for you, God, you, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, one thing I definitely think I know about the Psalms, one of the reasons why we all seem to love the Psalms, something I just mentioned a few minutes ago, is that we can identify with David with the circumstances and the situations that are going on. And a big reason why is because David's being brutally honest with us. Yeah. Right? There's no false piety. There's no righteous hot air with the psalmist. David's telling it like it is. He pours out his heart the way he feels. He breaks it before God. And then we often, I think... Right, we'll find this crescendo that we often find. David, he starts to get down in the dumps. And then there's a scene that changes to where he moves his eyes off of his own circumstances and start moving them on God. And the depth of heart despair is then raised to the heights of heavenly glory. It tells us, if nothing else, that it is possible. It is possible even in the depths of life, most, life's most challenging circumstances, to have that peace. Right? Why? What's this psalm teach us? Because we have the same God as David, right? Although everything was against David, what made the difference was David knew that God was for him. If God was for him, all those things... Though they were against him, could never prevail. In verse 3, he took comfort in the fact that God surrounds him. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory. You lift up my head. God surrounds us. And as a result, no ill can come against us through the will of God. As one great man of God said one time, I am, I am immortal until it's God's time. God surrounds us even when we lay our head on the pillow. Even after a day when everything had gone against us. And the thoughts that the evil one would love to plant and penetrate into our mind begin to disturb us. No, because we have God round about us. 
In verse 5, the second thing he takes comfort in, I laid down and slept and I awoke because the Lord sustained me. Not only does the Lord surround us, but the Lord sustains us. He keeps us going when we feel like we can't keep going. When there's nothing left to go for. Even when we're unconscious to the rest of the world, in sleep, God sustains us. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smote my enemies upon the cheekbone, and you have broken the teeth of the wicked. Save me, God. He's a shield. He sustains me, and he saves me. Here is David, discouraged through his circumstances, lying perhaps on a hard, rough bed of anxiety, fear in the wilderness, yet he knows that even if the people are against him, even if his own flesh and blood were against him, verse 3, you are a shield, my glory, and the lifter of my head. If the whole world is against me, David is saying, God will allow me and enable me to lift up my head high and face whatever challenges might come my way. God will keep me going on. Right? And that should be some sort of very nice spiritual sleeping pill for sleepless nights. A God who surrounds, a God who sustains, a God who saves, and a God even when everything is not going our way, or at least not the way we'd like, a God who lifts up our head and brings us glory. Let me leave you with this thought. When there are stressful days and sleepless nights, the pill for those sleepless nights is a sleepless God. Look at this prayer in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me. The battle, fight, battle cry for God to take the field, to defend his people. And I'll tell you, whatever circumstances that we might find ourselves, we're experiencing such stress, we can't even good, get a good night's sleep. We need to give ourselves up to prayer and pour out our hearts to God and say, Arise now, O God. David could pray this prayer. Why? Because he knew, let me turn to Psalm 121 real quick. He knew that the one who was hearing his prayers, who would answer them, was the one who said already in verse 3 of this psalm and verse 4, he will not suffer even your foot to be moved. Even though the psalmist is being promised, even though I'm out of Jerusalem and out of the palace, off the throne, he will not suffer my foot to be finally moved. He that keepeth me in slumber, I'm sorry, keepeth me will not slumber. He that keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep, Scripture says. David knew God's salvation was real because God's sleepless eye is ever on his children. We have a sleepless God. Maybe, maybe it's been in your life recently, perhaps few, for the past few days. Maybe, maybe again, maybe you thought God hasn't really been coming through for me. God hasn't arisen for me and let my enemies be scattered. He isn't there when I need him most. Where's God in my circumstances? Where's God today? Where's God in all of our bereavement? Where is he? Well, let me turn a moment to Mark's gospel chapter 4. Very famous portion of scripture. It's verse 36. 
And when he had sent away the multitude, they took him and he, even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. It was a great storm of wind. The waves beat into the ship. So that now it was full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. And they woke him and said unto him, Master, don't you care if we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so afraid? How is it that you have such little faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? These guys didn't think the Lord cared. Don't you care if we perish? Lord, don't you care? And the Lord rebuked them and said, you have little faith. How is it that you don't believe? Commentator R.D. Johnson said these words. The Lord rebuked them not for disturbing him with their prayers and pleas, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. Is it that what we do? We disturb ourselves with our own anxiety and fear. Don't you care if we die Lord, don't you care? Do you not know what we're going through? And the Lord at times seems to be asleep, doesn't he? Seems to be that he's not there to help when we need him, when we feel like we most need him. And he doesn't intervene at a time that we feel like is most necessary. The psalmist asked the question. We must ask it today. Why, Why should I stay awake all night when the Lord never slumbers or sleeps? What's the point of both of us staying up all night? Do we really believe that the power of God within us is greater than anything that can come from without and encompass us? John says in his epistle, you are of God, little children, and you've overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And what do we find in the world today? Mental breakdown, divorce, murder, right? Suicide, bereavement, drugs, alcoholism. We go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. There's none of us that are not affected by trouble here today. But greater is he that is in you, friend, than he that is in the world. David, when he was stripped and robbed of everything that he knew in a worldly sense, and he didn't have perhaps the guards around him. David wasn't trusting in man's strength, but he was encouraging himself in the Lord. He cried, Arise, O Lord, and save me, O God. Because he turned affections on things that were above, right? Were, were rat, rust, threat, not even death can corrupt. Because of his faithfulness and that belief, he could say, I laid down, um, I laid me down and slept, and I awoke for the Lord sustained me. Friends, may we all have this same experience in our lives. Maybe not the on the run business, right? but this ability to enter into a, an intimate enough relationship with our Father, what, whatever the stresses and the strains of our lives, the causes of the sleepless, sleeplessness that we may be experiencing. Bless us now, we pray our Father. May we know the experience today of putting our trust wholly and totally upon you. Being still and knowing that you truly are God. Amen? Amen. 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 Any questions?
You know, so often in the church world, the story of King David to non-believers sometimes seems to be an argument on their part that if somebody who was so incredibly flawed, so incredibly imperfect, could be seen as so incredibly favored by God, how, how do you square that with this idea of, of morality? What's interesting about David, especially in the Psalms, is David becomes one of us. We are just as fallible. We are just as imperfect as David. And David shows us a path that despite our imperfections, God still loves us and wants nothing more than to have an intimate relationship with us. So what makes King David the hero is not because he was perfect, but rather because no matter what, no matter his circumstances, no matter good nor bad, he sought God's love and he trusted in God's faithfulness. 3,000 years later, friend, that is a lesson for each and every one of us. If not, it's at least something to think about. Hey, friend, until next week, I hope that you're blessed. And until then, we'll see you.